Prison officers want access to tasers, patrol dogs and pepper balls to help control dangerous situations. The Corrections Association is proposing specialist prison officers to have access to the non-lethal weapons which can control inmates from a distance. It warns a chronic shortage of corrections officers is placing staff at risk of injury when a fight or riot breaks out. The association's meeting the Corrections Minister Mark Mitchell next Thursday to request the move. President Floyd Duplessis says only site emergency response teams and advanced control and restraint teams would be given access to tasers under the proposal. He's also advocating for the use of pepper balls which release a powder similar to pepper spray but a shot from a gun. Another suggestion is bringing in perimeter dogs to patrol the fence lines if a dangerous situation reaches a threshold. The Corrections Association President Floyd Duplessis is with us first from Dunedin. Good morning Floyd. Good morning. Tasers have been put on the table before over the years but ruled out. What's the basis for making the case this time? So the basis hasn't changed from the historic idea. Uh, what, what we've asked is that the taser is another option in terms of PPE. For those extreme situations, it's something that's non-lethal. It's something that you're able to use, as now the police use it widely, and they use it for a reason because it works. It's something that is another tool that's the in those situations where things have escalated, there's threat to life, and it's something that we say needs to be an option so that we can bring these things to a close quickly. So the PPE that officers use currently is what? And, and does it change when uh, an event happens? Yes, yeah, so currently what staff have access to is pepper spray. So they carry pepper spray on their hips. That has a very limited use. It's obviously got to be used in close quarters, so it's not used um, for a major event. It's used on day-to-day close quarters when something extreme flares up. And so we use that across the country. Generally, the use of that is very well controlled. There's a lot of training that goes into it, and there's a lot of parameters within that. What we're talking about is there's events that escalate, like the Waikiriwa White we had a couple of years ago where we lost an entire prison. In those events, we need something at, a, at the next level up that's able to step in and deal with those things better. And that's where things like the pepper ball launches comes into that something you can deliver from a distance, you can deliver it to a wide area. It's not lethal. It's considered less than lethal because of what it is. And there's a lot of training. We've been overseas to the States to look at how they use it, the training that goes into it. We've been through the training regime they do, and it's a very detailed training regime. And like we've said, the idea is to only launch it with dedicated teams. So these are people that will get additional training, oversight, and it'll be very carefully controlled. Okay, so I'm just trying to get clear. All prison officers now carry pepper spray all the time, is that what you're saying? That's correct. And then when there's an incident that escalates, the CERT team, I understand that you've referenced it already, um, what what gear do they have? So all they have that's different to a corrections officer is pepper spray. Um, is exactly the same thing. The difference in those events is when it escalates, they'll put on armoured protection to be able to go in there. But that's so they have exactly shields or they just have armoured gear? Um, armoured gear and a shield. And a shield. Yep. And so that's the thing is at that point, the only intervention we've got is to physically place hands on. It then becomes a fight. And what we're saying is let's bring in things that help deter this from happening 
and stop the fight because it's during that fight where both us and prisoners get injured. And that's what we want to prevent. We want to put something in place to stop that. You mentioned the Waikuria riot, which was quite extreme. What's the threshold for this? Are fights, direct confrontations and threats to officers enough to trigger this? What would? No, so things like the Waikuria riot, so there's very clear parameters right now in terms of when you can activate an ACR team. And so that's only when there's unrest with multiple prisoners. So when it's a, when it's a fight in a unit, that's something we deal with. There's tools to deal with that, and that's something we can deal with quite easily. Yes, we've got to step away and do it safely, but we're talking about events that escalate beyond just a fight between one or two people. Yeah, but, but we're talking about the quite extreme end with that riot. If it's a situation where multiple inmates are threatening or physically intimidating or looking like they're about to attack officers, and that begins to escalate and is not quelled, is that a situation where the specialist teams might be called in. Yes, and unfortunately, like you say, Waikiri is the extreme example, uh, but unfortunately what we are facing is there are more and more incidents like that. We just happen to deal with them at the moment. So that's uh, my point. This might be more than a once-every-few-years use, right? This might happen multiple times a year. Yes, it will, and unfortunately that's the problem. Can you explain what's happening? Can you give us some examples of what's happening that um, prompts this. Yeah, so we've we've had a number of incidents. Obviously, assaults on in prisons have skyrocketed over the last six years. With that, obviously, drives more and more big events. So there's been events where, in units, where um, a group, so eight prisoners, will control a unit and they'll refuse to unlock. They'll brandish weapons. They'll destroy property. So that's something we deal with numerous times through the year. And those events are where it escalates. And the only way we deal with that is we send those advanced teams in and they have to physically go in and fight to get back the, the control of that area. Numerous times a year. Do you have a specific number for last year or the year before? No, unfortunately that's something that the statistics on that isn't very well kept. Uh, why it is not? Something... Wouldn't, why wouldn't these be accurately recorded? Um, that's something you'd have to ask corrections. I know last year there was a push for them to start recording that better. Uh, so they are now starting together. So there's no formal process where a situation escalates to that level where there's a group of prisoners who've barricaded themselves and are making threats and a specialist team has to intervene. There's no record of those incidents kept by corrections? Uh, they do keep a record, so it's all very carefully documented, but what they don't do is report on it okay. separately. So it just full, fits into all the other events. Are those incidents, for the most part, resolved and resolved without harm or physical harm? Uh, they, other than the extreme events like Wakira, yes, they are resolved. Uh, but what they do come with is there are numerous occasions where there are injuries, both to staff and prisoners, and uh, large amounts of damage to facilities. So we have examples where entire units are out of action for a prolonged period while the repairs are made. Uh, and that's the problem. There's millions of dollars worth of damage that occurs each year. Um, and that's what we need to stop. Why is it getting worse? So th there's a number of factors. Uh, one of the things we're pushing for is obviously there needs to be more accountability. Prisons are prisons. We deal with that end of society, unfortunately. But what we are not very good at as a country is putting in place two things. Firstly, there's got to be consequence for behaviour. 
there's been a, a lack of that over a number of years, and that has skyrocketed. Obviously, things like the first responders bill that we're wanting to push and put back on the table shows a clear consequence for, for negative behaviour, for assaulting staff. If they see a consequence, that does deter behaviour. When there's no consequence, it encourages behaviour. So that's on the one end. At the same time, we do advocate for resources. Better rehabilitation, better targeted rehabilitation is what we need in the prisons. But you can't have that without the consequence. And so both of those need to be better run by the department. Is it also happening because of what we discussed last time you were on, which is that you said most prisoners would have experienced a prolonged lockdown for no reason other than a shortage of staff? Absolutely. The the staffing situation does factor into it. So when prisoners are locked down for prolonged periods, that does drive up the attention. And so obviously we're fighting and pushing for better staffing across the estates. We need to put measures in place to attract better staff and to retain the experienced staff. And we also need a review done. We need to sit down and have an objective review in terms of staffing ratios. How many staff are in the units in the prisons? What are they doing? And can we ramp that up to better get prisoners out, give them more time and give them better access to meaningful Look, rehabilitation? Cu- to, to cut a long story short, if I were locked up in a prison for anything up to 23 hours in a prison cell, let alone if I were a young physical male um, and perhaps one with emotion regulation issues, I would be getting pretty antsy. And, and what I'm asking is whether we're effectively looking at this as a control tool, a management control tool, because we have understaffed prisons? Uh, no. What we're saying is we need all of them. So, yes, we need to get them unlocked, and yes, we need to give them rehabilitation. But at the end of the day, we do deal with some particularly violent individuals. We deal with people that enjoy in violence, and that is something that they do. So we just need to put measures in place to prevent those extreme events. So I want to just delve into the consequences. You're not telling me that the consequences for bad behaviour would be a deeply unpleasant experience such as pepper spray or a tasering. Are you? Absolutely not. What we're talking about when it comes to consequence is putting something in place to address the behaviour. So if someone plays, if someone assaults a staff member... Pull them to the side. Don't give them full access to everything in terms of... So right now, if someone assaults staff, they just carry on their normal day. What they need to be done is brought aside and give them some targeted intervention to monitor and address their behaviour and change that. So the consequence is nothing to do with the physical or okay. PPE. It's about giving them better targeted programmes so that there's accountability for the behaviour. So it's not being used, you're not suggesting that the actual use of the tasers or the pepper spray, both of them deeply unpleasant, you're not suggesting that's the consequence. You are saying that is about safety and safety only? Or control and control only, or what? Safety, safety. The biggest thing is safety, and it's for staff and for prisoners. Yes, it creates an element of control, but it's because of the safety aspect. So there's one misconception out there. The reality is staff across the country do not enjoy using these things. The events where these happen are very traumatic for the staff themselves, so it's not something we want to use. From our perspective, if we can fix the staffing, if we can fix the better accountability and the interventions alongside that and better rehab, we might not need to use any of those interventions, but we need to have them available for those events so that everyone is kept safe. Can you explain more about the site's Site emergency response teams, the CERT teams, are they on site all the time? 
or do they need to be called in when an event happens? So they are on site all time. Uh, they carry out a number of functions, and so they work alongside Intel to look at what's happening there, what um, problems or what things are happening across the site, and they happen. One small component of their tasking is to respond to events, but it's only a component. Some of it's just border security and ongoing patrols, that kind of thing. Right, they're not prison guards themselves who then run off and don gear. They are a separate and separately trained crew. Yes, they're a separately trained crew. They get additional training. There's currently a review underway to look at additional training and additional support and resource for them to better do all those functions. What would be the role of the tactical dogs under your proposal? So the role of the tactical dogs is something we've seen overseas. So it gets widely used. Uh, It's something that from all those areas has shown to work exceptionally well. And the role of the tactical dogs is a, it's a patrolling dog that keeps safety and security. Again, in those extreme events, it's something that you'd have that you could use to clear an area and to control spaces. Uh, so you would bring them in. They might be perimeter patrol dogs, are you saying? And then you would bring them in, however, to a different role when there were an event? Yes. So when there's an event, having a dog at hand for, again, a deterrent. That's all it is. So, we, like I say, when we went to the States, we looked at those dogs. We spoke to the team that does national training around those tactical dogs, and the statistics they had was eye-rolling because despite thousands of occasions of deployment, over the space of a number of years, they'd only ever had two events where a dog had actually bitten someone because it's the deterrent that's the, that's the big thing, not biting. What breed are they, please? Uh, so it varies internationally. There's a number of breeds they use depending on on the training and what's available. So there are a number of different breeds that they do use. What did you learn? Did you only go to the United States, by the way, or did you go to other countries? Uh, so we we went to the United States last year to look at all those things. We go over to Australia on a regular basis and we work with the Australian prisons to share ideas and share different uh, PPE and equipment. What do they do in Australia? So Australia has a wide range. So they have anything from tactical dogs, firearms, uh, pepper spray. So they have quite a, a large array of PPE, far higher than anything. Okay. And, and we're not looking at that. We're not suggesting yeah. firearms at all. We think that is too extreme for what we're looking at. But there's some of those other lower level, less lethal options that we can. What research have you touched into on the psychological effect of this? Because... I'm not going to pretend to be having even the slightest um, experience of the nature of uh, relationships between prison guards and staff. Wentworth would be about the limit of my understanding, to be honest. Um, but all I, th- there is a power issue, right? And all I can foresee is the frustrations, the antisocial uh, mindset... Uh, that someone might hold becoming exacerbated by this level of power a- and control. Is there any research done on whether this might actually make the relationships more antipathetical, might, might make prisoners dislike guards? I haven't seen any research. All I can go by is the anecdotal evidence from talking to other jurisdictions where they're using these things. And all the all the evidence shows that it doesn't create that. The, the reality is, like I said, generally we don't use this. On a day-to-day basis, myself, walking on the floor, working as a corrections officer, 99% of my time is spent talking to the prisoners. 
And that's what we're focused on. And that's why we're saying, yes, we want these and we need these for safety. But tempering this by being clear, what we also want is we want those other measures to stop this from even being needed. Okay, Let's look at just a couple of the other things you're going to take to the Minister. The First Responders and Prison Officers Protection Bill. This is proposed legislation, is it? What would that say? So what that says is it proposes a minimum sentence. So currently... And historically, when you're a soldier corrections officer, just like other first responders, there's no real consequence, especially for corrections officers, because what happens is they, even if they do get a prison sentence out of it, it runs concurrent with what they're already serving, which means, again, there's absolutely no consequence. If they're doing a two-year sentence and they get an extra six months added, they get no nothing added. All we're asking for is there needs to be a minimum sentence put into this, and it needs to be added on top of. So it needs to be accumulative so that there's an actual real consequence to doing this. Okay, better management of known risks to staff. What are the known risks? So that's, uh, unfortunately, we've had a number of occasions over the last few years where staff have had threats made to themselves and their families. These are events where corrections, intel police have then looked into it and identified these are real risks, these are real threats that they are looking at. Uh, Unfortunately, there's been... A number of serious breaches of that where it hasn't been managed well. And what we're saying is we want corrections to work with us to look at how they monitor that information and how they then support and keep those staff safe. OK. The other points are review of current staff-to-prisoner ratios and recognition of excellence in the profession. Floyd, thank you. 25 minutes past nine it is on nine to noon. Uh, well, listening into that is uh, Amanda Hill, our next guest. She's a barrister and solicitor whose work mostly focuses on prisoner rights and health and safety advocacy in prisons. Um, Amanda, as we said, the tasers are not a new proposal, but back on the table now with a suite of other measures, uh, and the rationale's been set out there by the Corrections Association. What's your response? Um, Maureen, I'm I'm deeply concerned, and, and I'm actually quite horrified that after after quite a long period of working on um, a better way to address offending and a better way to deal with rehabilitation and reintegration, we've now taken an enormous step backwards, or at least the Corrections Association are proposing an enormous step backwards to brute force um, and force that, that, to me, isn't compliant with our domestic and international obligations. And that's coming on the back of... 10 years' worth of corrections not complying with the rules. Corrections department, not the union. That's correct. We need to separate who we're talking to That's here. correct, yeah. yeah. And, and I need to say at the outset, I agree with the association that the critical short-staffing is an enormous issue. There aren't enough officers. And so Floyd and I are on the same page there. We need more officers, we need to recruit, and the lack of staff is having an impact on the ability to unlock inmates and to comply with the minimum requirements. So no argument there that we are critically short-staffed across the prison estate. What I don't agree with is that that gives rise to the need for things like pepper ball guns and tasers and dogs. And I don't think we should be modelling ourselves on the United States as, as, as a good example of how to treat people who are detained. What's the issue? I, I, th- I think also... And again, I think this is separating out the union from the mm. department. Floyd made the point that, that, from his perspective, they're pro-rehabilitation, but it sounds like that's not necessarily happening mm. ideally either. No. So let's look at the safety issue. Mm. If these events are occurring numerous times a year, quote-unquote, to the extent 
that there's millions of dollars of damage, dollar figures one thing, but that suggests they've been major mm. events. And if staff and, and officers are getting injured, what what do you do? I mean, everyone should be safe at work. And again, I, Floyd and I are on the same page there. But what you don't do is um, stand back and use weapons at a distance to further dehumanise the person you are trying to de-escalate. So just pause there. Non-lethal, we need to say. Mm. What's the difference between pepper spraying where you're right up in someone's grill and using a spray ball from a distance where you have some safety? Potentially both parties have some safety. The pepper ball guns are really designed for outside use. Think about... So they were used heavily in the George Floyd protests where several people suffered quite significant injuries. Okay, so you wouldn't be using them across a room? Well, that's the thing. Most of these altercations, the fights, the the control and restraints, they're happening in small spaces. They're happening in cells, they're happening in yards. The Waikiria riot started in a yard. The the most control and restraints, and I've seen more footage than, than most people of these events. They happen in small spaces. And what we're talking about is firing a a gun, a non-lethal gun, let's be, sh- be clear, but a gun in a sh- small space, because that's where these events are going to happen. You've already got handheld spray, um, but the reality is, is that most people don't have the distance between the event and, and the responders. Okay. But if it's escalated, if it's ended up in a yard, mm. right, or started in a yard, mm. what would be the impact of using that control there? That might be the end of it. It might be, but historically what I've seen is that the, these fights um, don't come to an end when things like pepper spray are used. Um, well, they've got the pepper spray now. This is the, They do, and I was interested... You're talking about the pepper balls. Yes. The, the, the bigger response. Yes. The, the, the cert teams, the, the, the special response teams, they do still have access to the cell buster. So that is a pepper spray in a much larger form. So... The High Court found that the cellbuster was being used unlawfully for, for quite a long period of time. But that is still available for serious events. The rules were changed and, and tightened up, but they still have access to the cellbuster, which is the size of a fire extinguisher. Okay, It's a big, big pepper spray can that can be used either handheld or it can be used as a wand into an enclosed space. And, and I have real difficulties with the cell buster being available at all, but it is. There is still that, that At a access. certain level of event, though. At a certain level. And these, these thresholds, I mean, when you, when you feel at risk, when you feel concerned, you're going to think it's... it's I think there's a real um, judgment issue around what's an extreme event and what is yeah. you know, a fight. What, what do you believe the impact would be were this to be introduced and if it were to be used as suggested for significant events, you know, as we said, eight inmates barricaded, threatening, and an officer having, or officers having to face entering that space in order to get to, to get control again. Um, what do you believe the, would happen with this to be introduced? First of all, I think it will escalate a situation um, where you have people who are already elevated um, Firing, firing things at them is not going to improve that situation. Um, well, they may be overcome in the moment. 
But when you say escalate things, are you talking about beyond the moment? I, I've seen enough footage of these sorts of events to see that people... In went, New Zealand prisons. In New Zealand prisons, where th- it doesn't subdue people. They, they become more angry, mm. a- and it escalates further. Um, but more, more, more concerning than that is, is that it is harmful. It, it, it creates injuries. So in the use of these things overseas, the paper ball guns, people have lost eyes, um, people have suffered um, broken bones, and um, there was one incident with a pregnant woman who was seriously injured as well. So the, we talk about non-lethal, like it's a good thing, but these cause actual injuries. Um, and when you're in an enclosed space, as I imagine these will be used, you're effectively shooting fish in a barrel, and we have to think really carefully about what whether we want to go down that road. I raise the question of the psychology, the psychological effects, the power issue, Mm. um, and whether, I'm just positing this because I don't Mm. have any knowledge of it, positing this as whether it might elevate attitudes towards officers. Yes. Is there any research you're aware of that suggests that needs to be considered as a risk? Yes. Um, So, first of all, around... 80 to 85% of people in prison have been in state care and a huge number of those people have suffered some form of trauma in their life. So they are already damaged, they're already vulnerable when they come into the prison system. And when you when you have a further traumatic event for someone, that triggers memories of those past events. Um, so there is a, a, an, an immediate psychological harm there's an immediate physical risk. Um, and then there's a long-term, um, I don't want to say grudge, but there, there is a view of these people are re-traumatising, they're an abuser. Because when you trigger those memories, those feelings, then prison officers become abusers. You make the point people have the right to be safe at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, in multiple ways at the moment, prison officers might question that. The staffing is unquestionably a big Mm. issue. We've already discussed that previously with Floyd Duplessy. Uh, Now there is a situation where he is telling us there are numerous events on this scale each year. What is the solution? The solution, firstly, more staff, um, because some of these events are coming out because people aren't getting their minimum entitlements. So for a whole year, there's a couple of units in Auckland Prison that were only being let out of their cells every second day for one hour. And like you say, when when you're not being unlocked and you're not getting any exercise, you're not talking to anyone, you're going to lose it. So there is a direct correlation between the lack of unlocked time and the number of incidents. So we need to be meeting minimum entitlements. We're not complying with the Corrections Act. That isn't on the association. That's That's on on the department. department. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Floyd Duplessis, I just want to come back. Was there um, any comment you wanted to make there? Do you have, by the way, those, uh, what was the name of them? The the uh, pepper the larger the cell busters the cell busters do you have those available to officers now available to the specialist emergency response teams now, Floyd? Yes, yeah, thank you. Uh, Definitely, there's a few things I'm happy to comment back on. The one is yes, the cell busters, like you say, there was a court case that happened. They were determined unlawful. Uh, There was a technicality in uh, an area in the law. They've tidied that. The fact is, the cell busters, yes, they exist. Yes, it's a big can. But there's very careful control on how much of that you can use. So you're limited on that. Uh, but to be clear, 
we hardly ever use it. The use of, of cell buster is very, very rare, and it's only in those rare events where you've got to get approval, where someone's barricaded in a cell. They are saying that if any, anyone who enters the cell, I'm going to kill them, and I've got a weapon in my hand. Okay. One follow-up. If is this often happening in comparatively confined spaces inside? And if so, which of these tools, the taser or the pepper ball um, or the pepper spray, would most likely be used, Floyd? So, like we've said, when it comes to something in a cell, no, you wouldn't use this. This is something that will be used at a distance. Uh, but the in, clear thing- ins- inside? Yes, because inside some of the units are rather large. So you could stand at a metre of 10 metres within a building and use these things. So it's not within a small confined space. Yes, there are small confined spaces, but those are those one-on-one events where we wouldn't use this because this is a distance delivery tool. Okay. The reality is we don't stand back, right? So we spend all our day inside the wing with these guys. We don't stand outside and monitor them from a distance. We're in there. We're talking about, on those examples, outside of the normal where we need to do this. Okay. And just wanted to touch on the, the mental health Fully agree with that statement. 80% of them do have mental health concerns. The question I've got for the department then is what training is delivered so that we can deal with and address and work with these individuals? And the answer is none. There are no dedicated mental health programs. We're starting to look at introducing some at the moment. But this is the problem, is we can't talk about statistics and concerns because over the last few years, what have we done to improve those conditions, to improve the statistics? Because... What we do know is every single measure that there is has gone backwards over the last six years. I thank you both very much. We'll keep in touch. Thank you. That's Floyd Duplessis of the Corrections Association. And thank you also uh, to lawyer and inmate advocate Amanda Hill.